I speak in the name of God. Abandon this body. Abandon it, I order you. I speak in the name of God. In virtue of his power, which is above all creation. In his excellent name, I command that you immediately abandon the body of this servant of the Lord and that you dare not come back to enter it. Exorcism, a disturbing story which presents with absolute realism and in all its crudity an eternal theme, the struggle of good against evil, the eternal battle between man and the devil. You're not like that, you know. You're manly. Beautifully strong. <laughs> Exorcism. Shattering scenes in an incredible story. <laughs> Exorcism. An intriguing film. Powerful. Realistic. Welcome back to the Nashy Cast. We start year 11 with uh, a return visitor. I am Rod Barnett. You're the return visitor? No, no, no. I'm the host. <laughs> All right. I'm Troy Gwynn. You're the co-host. That's okay. Or we, I guess we're both co-hosts in a way. We're the co-hosts. I'm Rod and he is Troy. And with us tonight is returning victim, <laughs> Sam, <laughs> Sam Deegan. Hello. <laughs> Sam is a writer, editor, and podcaster uh very proud of, uh, very proud to have her back on the show for a number of reasons. One, uh, she's a, a published author, and not just like uh, Troy and I, we get the occasional something in some damn magazine or something. No, no, no. This woman publishes books. <laughs> she that sounded kind of bad. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But these are the these are the kinds of books that I like to buy, and not just you know peek at when the uh, when the magazine. Uh, when the magazine's on the shelf. most Well, most recently, the one that is out already is her book on Fritz Lang's M. Is it Lang or Lang? I mean, most Americans say Lang. Technically, in German, yeah. there's that long, like, ah sound yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah. Okay. So it's fine. Yeah. It's fine to say Lang. Okay, well, uh, she, she wrote an entire book of Fritz Lang's film M. And uh, for, it's, a public, it's a devil's advocate book, right? Yes, it is. And she's just announced the her next book, which will be coming out from McFarland Press, I think, later this year, called "The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema," which, if you were to somehow arrange uh, with little magnets on your refrigerator, a title that would cause <laughs> me to immediately push the "Buy It Now" button, yeah, yeah, that would be pretty close to it. Yeah, I, I honestly can't 
believe that that that's even happening. It's a book that I started working on probably like five or so years ago before I had any kind of freelancing career. And I had to kind of stop working on it when I started freelancing more, which, you know, is great, but it turned into this giant kind of book that had taken all these different shapes. And so I decided a couple months ago, or what am I even saying? It's like 2020 just isn't in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) I decided at some point at the end of 2019 that I should finally do something with it. So I decided to kind of focus it a little bit more because I have essays and chapters about all different kinds of World War II cinema, and it seems sort of ridiculous to try to fit them all into one book. So the way that I kind of focused it was this European art house book, which I'm still sort of in shock that it's coming out at all, but I did have to leave some things out as as a result, and one of those things is Spanish cinema, so mm. I'm kind of hoping to do another World War II book at some point, which is insane, but... <laughs> oh, no, no. well, hold, hold on, I've got to really quickly get on my phone, I've got to cancel that pre-order. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, uh, it, well <laughs> if, if you got to do a whole other book mm-hmm. centered around how World War II affected Spain, honestly, that kind of makes a little bit of sense, considering that Spain is, uh, you know, for years... Uh, people thought of Spain as that uh, that little nation with the dictator who stayed out of the war. And then the more we learn as time passes about just how involved Franco's administration and uh, what, what actually how tied they were to, the, to what was going on in Germany, that becomes a story in and of itself. Yeah, it was really difficult for me to narrow the scope of the book. Like, I have all this stuff on Asian cinema that I wanted to include but couldn't. And so basically what I ultimately focused on were countries that were occupied during the war. So pretty much all of Europe except for Switzerland, England, and Spain. Mm -hmm. And of course, like, you know, Russia and the Soviet territories as well. Because, exactly as you point out, they were neutral. And so they have, and also Ireland, because for whatever reason, Ireland decided to be neutral, which is really embarrassing. Um, (laughs) But it's just like, how do you be neutral in that particular conflict? Like, how cowardly can you be? You're not even occupied by fascist forces. Like, come on. I think but, I think you're discount I think you're discounting the intense hatred that the Irish say. have for the for the, for the just, English. So. Yeah, that was going to go there too. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but, no, but it, it's exciting that this is coming. This is coming out. I mean, I mean, you say you started writing this five years ago, and it was it was I guess it was kind of a start and stop kind of thing. But uh, did you did you start out with the uh, with this being put in front of a publisher as something to to do, or were you doing this on your own and seeking out a publisher later on? No, I I didn't approach a publisher until just before Christmas in 2019. Okay. <laughs> and it just it was one of those things where I had this stupid blog that I wrote in every day because I'm a crazy person. And <laughs> it, like I had like 10 blog readers and I just really loved writing. And so I reached a point where I sort of figured, okay, I'm 
writing so much content in my blog, maybe I should turn it into a book. And so I just made this like huge list of things I wanted to cover. And I started writing chapters related to that list. And so the book that's coming out this year is very different than what I started with. And like I rewrote and expanded a bunch of things. So it, it feels like such a different project, but it is really weird to have something that you were working on off and on. It, it's almost like when you go to college or you're in some sort of like training program and you finally graduate and it's like you've been working towards it for years, but you're like, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> <laughs> you find another project. And you die down. Yeah, I, I guess so. <laughs> Well, speaking of other projects, you're also involved in a number of podcasts around the uh, the web. Uh, Evil Eye, the Evil Eye podcast. So yeah. that is a really ridiculous, <laughs> like it's sort of goth themed, but really we just talk about whatever we want, which is usually movies. Like our latest episode is all about Orson Welles. Mm, cool. Good, good, good topic any time of the day, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah, he's the best. And then, of course, there's uh, the Daughters of Darkness podcast that you do with Kat Ellinger. Yes, indeed. That is another one where I don't know, like, we, unlike you guys, we're far apart. And so we've always recorded remotely. But something about quarantine, we just decided, like, we have to mix it up and do video episodes. So it's kind of a nice change. I feel like quarantine is making everybody want to sort of figure out what they can do differently, but still mm -hmm. do in their living room. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. True. True. Uh, I love the fact that the most recent episode of evil eye is Orson Welles, but the most recent episode of daughters, daughters of darkness focuses on, on Lucio Fulci. Yeah. So. Very cool. <laughs> yeah. It's all about the New York Ripper. And we really kind of like went on a tirade about, we didn't, we sort of joke about it in the beginning of the episode about how, People complain about how misogynistic the film is, which is, you know, something that I think happens to a lot of European cult cinema, not just Fulci, but yeah. it, it especially happens to New York Ripper. And by the end of the episode, we're like passionately arguing that <laughs> Fulci is actually kind of pro-feminist. <laughs> <laughs> nice. We went, we went on a journey. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the, the, the whole uh, misogynistic charge is something that uh, I mean, we, we address it sometimes when we're talking about a movie where it's, it's, it, it, you could get that impression because the movie is portraying a story about characters who are misogynistic. And it becomes a question of whether this is a story about misogynists or if the, the film itself is misogynistic. And it's, it's, it, 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 don't get me wrong, there are films who that, there are films that are misogynistic, but you have to make a delineation between the attitude of the film and the attitude of the characters in the story. And uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot to chew on when you start talking about that subject. Yeah, and I I'm so glad you phrased it that way because it's something that I find really frustrating when people are so reductive and mm -hmm. they're you know immediately triggered because they see misogynistic content without bothering to think like, okay, does the point of this film seem to be that it wants you to think this misogyny is horrible? Like in the case of New York Ripper, you're clearly meant to be repulsed by it. Yeah. So it's, it's not like, oh, let's uphold these values and go, you know, murder a bunch of women with broken wine bottles. 
it like it's not telling you it's not glorifying that whereas i feel like there are a lot of hollywood films that don't seem offensive on the surface level but are way more misogynistic like like even something like pretty woman is yeah it's usually my go-to example for (laughs) for like undercover extreme misogyny and it's always well the first time i ran across people criticizing a film uh and thereby the filmmaker involved for being a misogynist was uh, was Brian De Palma in his his string of uh, his th- string of thrillers starting with Dress to Kill all the way up through Body Double, and it it always seemed to escape them that the people doing the horrible things to women were the greedy bastards who were doing these things because they knew that doing these awful things to women would distract people from the fact that they were attempting <clears throat> to steal money from people. <laughs> And it, it is, you know, this is this is in the in the story. The way the story is constructed, the characters who are doing the horrible things to women are doing that because they know that that will throw you off the scent in the first place. Yeah, and especially with those De Palma films, and I know Dressed. I was actually just having a conversation with somebody recently about Dressed to Kill and the sort of controversy around it. How people are just very offended by the idea of it without even having seen the film. And it's like in all of these thrillers, for the most part, it's the antagonist who's shown to be misogynistic and violent. And those are people that you hate and you want them to be caught and punished. They're not glorifying. Like it's hard for me to think of cult movies that really glorify misogyny. I I feel like you could make a case for some of those Clint Eastwood Westerns where, and I love a lot of those films, but you know, he has characters who I I think, is it high plains drifter where it starts off where he rapes a female character and Mm -hmm. then it's like, surprise, he's the hero. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and, and it's easy to make the argument. And with that film, I would that, you're not supposed to like that character. By the end of the film, the, yeah. the realization that you're you know, that the film slaps you with is that you've been rooting for this anti-hero, and he's really a villain. <laughs> he's, yes, which is which is great, and I think that works really well in a lot of westerns in a way that it doesn't in other genres. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the that's that's the beauty of the western is that. It's uh, the Western is, is merely the dressing around which you build, you know, your drama or your action film or whatever actual type of movie you're making. And that's that allows uh, that allows people to, to create just about whatever they want to within that milieu. And it, and it sets up a certain number of, of factors that you can then add or subtract. But boy, am I going off track here. We're not talking about that tonight. Sam. No. Sam, Sam, <laughs> let's get on track with the fact that you decided you wanted to come on and talk about a couple of Nashi films and you picked two Nashi films that are connected in an interesting way. By Satan. <laughs> so, There's so, that old Satan character again. Just to... so, Suddenly you're Dana Carvey doing the church lady character. <laughs> <laughs> Well, tonight you, we're gonna we're gonna talk a bit about uh, exorcism and Inquisition. The fact that uh, Paul Nashi wrote both of these films several years apart, uh, he, all indicators are that he wrote his uh, original exorcism script in the early '70s, right around the time he might have read the novel before the film got made. That uh, it is so obviously so 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 obviously the reason that, uh, that his his film got made at all is the massive success of The Exorcist, of course. And then there is. Uh, 
Inquisition, which some could say would be a response to another film, which would be something along along the lines of either uh, Mark of the Devil or Witchfinder General. It's in that in that that weird little subgenre there. But couched within these stories is an examination or a look into how he presents the, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub. Uh, Mephisto, uh, whatever whatever devilish name you'd like to toss out there to, to talk about. And uh, it does give us two really strange windows into his mind and to how he may have viewed using these types of, let's call them, I guess, archetypes. Yeah, and watching them back-to-back as a double feature. Cause, so I had seen both of these pretty early into my discovery of Nashi when I was like in my late teens, early twenties. Okay. But I didn't, I watched them probably a couple of years apart. So in my head, they weren't really associated with each other, but watching them back to back again, to talk about them today was really interesting because they use similar themes so differently. Agreed. In both films, he's playing a man of God. Uh, but and, so different. They're so different. Yeah. You know. They're very different. In, in Exorcism, the character he's playing is, I mean, let's be clear. The character that he plays in Exorcism is a good man. He is a good guy. There, there's, no, uh, there's, no, there's no subtext to him that would, that would darken his character in any way. He is at all times, as far as I can tell, trying to do the right thing and trying to help people. And he's doing it in the best way that he sees possible. Uh, that is quite different when you get to Inquisition. Yeah, but Inquisition also does a weird thing with that Witchfinder sort of subgenre where it almost tries to make it... like. I feel like this this is a thing that happens in so many Nashi movies where even if he plays the monster or or a human villain, it still kind of tries to make him the hero at the same time or like make him likable or sympathetic. And it's like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Well, or at the very least have sex with several different women. So yes, yes. Of course. Goals are important. Well, now, and that's something else that kind of stands out in Exorcism in that he doesn't have a sex scene in that film. And there was a part of me going back and rewatching Exorcism. I had forgotten that that was true. I had forgotten that, oh, well, I, just, I had forgotten that this was this was at least one Nashy script that did not have him uh, writing himself, you know, bedtime with uh, his co-stars. Well, and also Inquisition is the only the only woman he does sleep with in the film is just playing him the whole time. So she's Correct. not even swayed yeah. by the Nashy musk, as we talk about, you know, she's... <laughs> You know, there's, there's, you know, and 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 he doesn't even do the thing in some of these films that the, you know, the witch hunter uses the women to, yeah, you know, no matter how much he tortures them, there's not one point where he bribes one of them to have sex with him, you know. So yeah, those those two for those reasons alone, these two films are kind of stand out among the usual uh, the way Nashi normally writes his characters and their relations with women. Yeah, and that's yeah, that's weird. It really is because th- that's one of the standout moments for me. I, I, I've always felt that uh, and and. Luckily, Price felt this way as well. I've always felt that Vincent Price's performance in Witchfinder General was absolutely one of the best performances he ever put on screen in a horror movie. And oh, one of totally. the he's he's phenomenal in that film. And one of the one of the great scenes in that in Witchfinder General is when Price pushes the female lead into having sex with him 
to protect her father and her lover. And it is a brilliantly played scene, and it lays bare everything that we kind of already know about Price's character at that point in the movie, but it is so well played, and, and the actress playing opposite him does as good a job as he does in that scene. I think that's a case where you're talking about uh, actors who definitely worked this out between them before the cameras rolled. And it just is so effectively done that there's a part of me that kind of wishes that there were scenes like that in Inquisition, but that is not the tack that Nashi took. He wanted something different. Yeah, but it is also weird to see, or maybe weird is the wrong word, fascinating to see his interpretation of what feels like familiar genre material. And certainly mm -hmm. at the time, it wouldn't have been super familiar like witchfinder general was nowhere near on the level of popularity as the exorcist but it is funny that instead of having that kind of calculating sadism and like emotional cruelty that's in witchfinder general he falls in love with her and is just like desperate for her to be with him mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> yeah it's like oh nashy <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's as if he can't stop himself from mm. it from from injecting romanticism into this story somehow. Yeah. Well, I think we had pointed out. Which is what makes him great. Yeah. 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 I think we had pointed out too that when we covered the, the movie that his, his reaction to her is, is, um, is it, it hints that and never without ever explicitly stating it, it hints that there's something about the, just the defiance in her eyes. They're like the power, like, you know, just her own self-independence that yeah. somehow speaks to him because he's used to coming into these towns and everybody just cowering, you know, all he sees in other people's eyes is fear until he sees her and she doesn't. And, and a lot of it, I think came out the way the actress said that, that she originally, I think the role was originally supposed to be someone a little more innocent and, and demure, right. but because of her own personality, that just wasn't the way she was. So she played it that way, but that really plays well on the screen because it suggests that, he finally sees somebody that's not afraid of them, and it just obsesses him. It just infatuates him. <laughs> and I think that that's that's a that's a good call because you're right. The the actress uh, uh, Daniela uh, Giordano she talked uh, at length about how uh, working on Inquisition kind of ruined her for other directors later on because Nashi allowed her to alter the character in that way to play the character the way she saw it, and therefore. To, to his mind, the way Nashi phrased it with her was to make the film better because of the way she's interpreting the interpreting her character. And so what you're seeing there is a much more interesting view of what it would be that would draw Nashi's character to this woman. In other words, it's not just uh, a beautiful woman. It is a woman who, while also being attractive, obviously, there's more to it than that. What's drawing him to her is the fact of her character, the fact of the, the kind of person that she is. And it makes it such a more interesting movie because of that. And it's also, I mean, to kind of go back to what we were talking about in, in terms of, you know, misogyny in movies earlier, I think a lot of these are all kind of blanketly criticized as being misogynistic by all of these. I mean like European horror in general, mm -hmm. not just Nashi's films, yeah. but yeah. there are so many counter examples, especially in Spanish horror, which is one of the things I love so much about it. But in Inquisition, it's like one of the very few 
witchcraft movies from the 70s where there is a strong female character who takes a sense of joy maybe but definitely power from her use of the occult and her relationship with Satan and you don't see that very often like I I do think it's kind of frustrating that so many of the more celebrated kind of bigger name witchcraft movies from this period are movies like Mark of the Devil and Witchfinder General where there's no actual occult in them yeah not even sort of hallucinatory dream sequence type things but they're all very political. They're about how people are terrible. They usually have these kind of torture sequences that seem to be the main focus. And Inquisition is just so different from that in a way that I think is really refreshing. Mm-hmm. It has much more to say about the, 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 way the, the way that people who had no power felt empowered by the occult. And, of course, it's especially... This film, especially, I think, effective that ultimately there is no real occult in this film, which I think makes it even more effective, you know, that that, that, that there's not actually, and it keeps you guessing up until yes. the very last. It kind of teases that out, but then you realize yeah. ultimately. Spoiler alert. Yeah, yeah, I guess we, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully everybody who's going to listen to this episode, I hope, because, yeah, we probably will. Maybe You may be preface, preface, yeah. yeah, put some in the show notes there that, yeah, that, 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 we, if it, that we will be spoiling it, but, uh uh, but yeah, both of these films are available on Blu-ray. Go see the damn thing. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. gorgeous-looking Blu-rays. Yes, they are. That was that was. I have to admit, going back, this is this is a side. This is a little side comment here. But let me let me just say that uh, once. Uh, okay, for those of you who don't know, Troy and I did do a commentary track for Inquisition when Mondo Macabro put it out. It was the first commentary commentary track we did, and I can never bring myself to listen to it because <laughs> I just cringe away from it. But. <laughs> Because of that, I haven't gone back until just this week to look at that Blu-ray and really watch the entire film from beginning to end and get a good look at the at, at the movie itself. And my God, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, just gorgeously okay, so shot. Your your commentary is great, no, but you. it's really refreshing to hear you say that because I have the same problem. Oh, like anytime I record a commentary, once it's submitted, I now can never open. Like once mm-hmm. I get contributor yeah. copies, I can never open that disc. I can't, <laughs> I can't I, listen I can't. to it. Say, I always tell Rod, you know, Rod's got the 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 the, the worst job. Of, you know, all I have to do is record the commentary, and then I, I don't ever have to hear it again if I don't want to. You know, and and most times I don't. You know, Rod, on the other hand, has to hear it a million times in editing it, and 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 so he has to cringe over and over uh, when he hears. Uh, <laughs> yes. But yeah, but I can't. Yeah, I I. I I'll, I will I will Hard. listen to a few minutes just for the especially the first one we did when it came out I had to put it on just a few minutes to just the novelty of oh that's oh, us that, doing an audio commentary and that's I, how, that's I, can, how I, learned I can take about I could take about you know half a minute of it and I was like okay that's enough I've heard enough time <laughs> to turn it off yeah <laughs> oh yes that's our voice oh my god I'm out of here yeah but one of the things about going back and rewatching well both of these movies but especially mm. Inquisition was just realizing how beautiful they are and how the beauty the physical beauty of the, the places in which these events are taking place kind of enhance the horror elements that are built into the story. Because we're ta- when, when you talk about Inquisition, and to a, a, a lighter degree, it's true in Exorcism as well, because what we're talking about are uh, female characters who, are, who, to one degree or another, have been taken advantage of and are finding a way to uh, assert their strength or their power in, in, in a way that... Uh, Kind of turns it turns on them in a in a difficult way, 
uh, <laughs> turns all of them in the worst way. Quite, quite honestly, let's be let's be clear. Let's be clue. At first, I thought you said turns them on in a difficult <laughs> oh. way. And I, was like, <laughs> I was like, that's one interpretation. It's like, oh man, <laughs> like, man, when my nipple gets ripped off, my yeah, it just feels so. Well, or, or or when the flames lick at my labia. No, I don't. I don't know that that's necessarily any woman who's who's being really turned on by the flames looking at at, at their nether regions is probably. <laughs> Probably only going to experience that pleasure once, so you know. Don't kink shame. <laughs> You're right. I stand. Cor- I stand corrected. Let me go get the cigarette lighter. Oh my god! But, okay. The last, the last time we talked about Yeti nipples, I feel like. <laughs> wow. Oh my god! You're right. <laughs> I forget, I'd completely forgotten about that. You're right. Oh, okay. Well, no, don't, don't don't worry. One day you and I will talk. You and I will talk Yetis at length, just for just for the sheer novelty of it, if nothing else. I thought she's yeah, gonna say the, thought she's gonna say the two of you would like just start your own nut, start nipple cast. You know, we'll be like your your new next show, next regular show. <laughs> well, no, I, I can't. I can't envision a, a series of abominable snowman or a yeti podcasts. Oh, I'd be all about uh, it. Would be, it would be so strange. We'd have to. We'd have to go back to the uh, Insuro Honda uh, film Half Human and, yeah. and compare the American version versus the uh, Japanese version. Yeah, one of my favorite movies of all time is Suburban Sasquatch. <laughs> no, I haven't, I haven't seen that. Actually, I've heard of it. I've never seen it. Oh my lord. It is an experience. <laughs> I don't know if you will enjoy the experience, but it is you will not have another one like it. <laughs> I don't know if that's that sounds good and bad. Anyway. It is. Oh lord. Well, what 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 I what I was uh what I was <laughs> Slowly working my way toward talking about. What you were trying to say before I derailed you? (laughs) I think I derailed myself, Sam. I think I really did that to myself. But where I was going with this was the idea that uh, Inquisition is such a beautiful film that, uh, and there's so much of it that is shot outdoors, so that we could take, you know, they take advantage of uh, the sunlight and just the beauty of the the pastoral setting to give you an idea of uh, what this place is like and what this world is like. And why it would kind of be very natural for these women who are disempowered to seek a way through what would seem a naturalistic way of going about things, because the religion is kind of their, their religion is built into everything that's part of their life, and it's always bolstered by the the nature around them. All all the you know the the, the talk of. Uh, uh, all of the beauty that God has provided, you know, all all of this this wondrous all of this wondrous beauty around us, and and uh, th- you know, thanking God for it, and, and and building kind of a bluntly patriarchal way of looking at this physical beauty, and so a way to claim or in some ways reclaim some of that power for themselves would be to use the naturalistic things. I think that's why you get into the area where you have the you know. It's typical of all these stories where you have the the older woman who has learned which plants to use. You know, you're talking about you know, using uh, medicines and things of that nature. Uh, knows what potions to mix. Knows how to take care of wounds. Knows how to take care of different things. You know, you don't necessarily have a you know a real medical person around at all in, in all rural areas of this type. And so the the slow buildup and the the just the physical beauty backing that and how. The closer you are to the earth, the more natural it would seem to just, you know, if the the people who are 
putting or making my life miserable are the ones claiming this side of this equation, this very two-sided equation, maybe I would be better off switching to the other team. And uh, when you get those those women who go into hysterics and start professing, yes, I you know I I do love I do love the devil and I have done all these ridiculous things and I did fly around and all these different things. It's almost as if their their claims of that type, whether they believe them or not, is uh, are not just a way of, of uh, asserting themselves in in a way that damns them at the same time, but it's also the only way in which they have to assert any real power whatsoever, especially at the point where they're they're so broken that they're just going to scream this out. And I think that is a, also a really kind of subtle, and maybe not so subtle, but a subtle attack at, you know, totalitarianism and Franco's Spanish government, because in a lot of these films, you definitely see that clear dividing line that you're talking about, where on one hand, you have these kind of masculine civilizing impulses, which are often represented by the church, but they're against everything that seems instinctively good in the films. Like they're Mm -hmm. against any kind of pleasure. They're against people falling in love unless it serves some sort of political or economic purpose. And, And so I think one of the things that is so interesting about inquisition is it is much more dramatic about that kind of dividing line. And you sympathize with the women especially who are actively working against those kind of controlling forces of authority. And usually a lot of these films, I think even something like Ken Russell's the devils, when it shows women in this grip of hysteria who are acting out just to set themselves against that kind of power, it makes them look a little bit ridiculous, I think Mm -hmm. at times, or like they become a kind of kind of a spectacle maybe, but yeah, yeah. in Inquisition, I think the film takes them much more seriously. Mm-hmm. And I think it is a lot to do with the improvisations around her performance and how like strong-willed she is. Well, you bring up a good point that I also wanted to talk a little bit about, which is I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a coincidence that this movie, that Inquisition, got made after General Franco died. It's, it seems to me that this story, whether he had this in mind, however long this script sat around or however long he had the idea to craft this kind of story, um, I don't know that he would have felt comfortable producing this story because I think it does make a lot of commentary that isn't that well hidden about authoritarian rule about the the kind of government that Spain had and I also think that even though Franco had died by the time this movie got produced they they still did set it in France yeah he would have been in big trouble if he tried to put it out in like 71 <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. yes he would the you know mark of the devil and witchfinder general those are british and german films so you're you know you're not worried about the, the kind of backlash that you might get from uh, from the government in those particular countries for this kind of story. But in Spain, that would have been a very different, very different matter. And do you guys, uh, just picking your brains for your memories here, because I just may be not remembering, but you know, I love in Inquisition the Eduardo Calvo character, yes, who yes. we can just call the voice of reason. He's the he's the <laughs> good he's the good male character in the film. But I was, can you guys remember? 
any other characters in these other types of films at this that spoke from a more modern psychological insight into these people, you know, like, like his character. I think that's a fascinating, the way his character is, you know, kind of trying to not just speak reason, but also trying to offer some insights as to why these people are, he's, are, he's, are, are, yeah. are being driven to the occult. And I don't know if I remember another character in any of these films that, 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 that had those kind of insights into, you know, that spoke from that, that, that point of view. I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't remember any. I think that the Eduardo Calvo character always felt like a man who was, you know, he was waiting for the enlightenment. You know, yeah. he was yeah. he was someone who who was smart enough. And don't get me wrong; the other characters are, are smart as well. But he's someone who's thinking outside of the restrictions that the religion has placed on his mind, and it's a lot of that seems to come from. Both his experience, his life experience. He's ve- he's very some of the, some of the dialogue between him and, and Nashi's character are are wonderful because it does very much feel like the kind of dialogue the way he will uh, explain himself, explain why he feels the way he does. It's very much the kind of conversation you'd expect a man who's intelligent and has thought this stuff through and arrived at these these. Uh, these stances on these particular subjects. It's how he would speak to someone else who he sees as an equal and who is intelligent and who might be brought along as well if they could just follow in those same steps. Yeah, it's interesting that more of these sorts of movies don't have characters like that more prominently because if you're looking at any kind of critique of fascist or even, you know, older totalitarian controlling forms of government, usually, like, if you look at the actual Inquisition itself, it's very critical of science and rational thinking unless some of those elements are in its favor. Like, some of the things that we see in this movie are a pretty good example of the the sorts of weird arbitrary rules that they would use to determine if somebody is a witch or not. Yeah. And it's funny to kind of watch movies like that now at a time when you have a lot of really right wing forces who are like, science isn't real. Facts are not real. (laughs) And so that Eduardo Calvo character, I was like, Oh buddy, (laughs) we need you. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. Certainly. And the 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 well, I mean to to switch over into uh, to exorcism for a moment. It seems to me that the character that Nashi plays in Exorcism, this enlightened and intelligent and thoughtful priest, seems to embody a lot of the good aspects of both Nashi's character and Eduardo Calvo's character from Inquisition, uh, in in one form because. This is not a, he's not an unreasonable man. He's intelligent. Uh, he's not uh, he's not someone who makes uh, stupid decisions or goes against, goes against uh, the the obvious realities of life around him because his religion it points him in a certain direction. And it almost seems as if, uh, but but besides Nashi in Exorcism wearing that wearing that cool beard and looking really good in a hat, he also seems like he's just a really good person. And there doesn't seem to be any flaw within that character. And there's a, and I wonder if, considering that exorcism came first and then Inquisition later, yeah. if maybe he might have seen the the two characters that talk to each other in Inquisition as kind of the 
younger version of the two halves of the priest character in Exorcism kind of working this very this working these things out in himself as he is educated, uh, basically kind of you know having these conversations out loud instead of internally, and the, uh, the it kind of makes I, I have to say I didn't think that, I didn't think this way when we originally went through Exorcism years ago. But in a lot of ways, the character that he plays, the priest character he plays, he's almost too good a guy. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't really have any uh, any flaws. There's no point in the story where I feel like he's he's making a bad decision because you know because of his religion, or he's making a bad decision because of a of a, of a misguided thought process. Which, in a way, and if I have to like rank them, I think I prefer exorcism to inquisition slightly but it did sort of disappoint me because i was like waiting for him to you know rip off his priest's collar and fall in love with someone and get his chest hair out because that's what he does in every movie Uh, (laughs) that is a yeah that is a great point because that's what i was gonna i was gonna say something about that too because you know, for me, I think I as a movies between the two side by side, I probably prefer Inquisition a little more. But I think they're you know I love them both. You know, I'm probably a little bit more of a fan of Inquisition. But Be- because think, because there's more female nudity, right? <laughs> you man, you know me too well. You know me so well. <laughs> uh, but he's two characters here. If you you know the his 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 character in Inquisition, however despicable you know, or how some of the things he does and how unlikable his character and, and rigid and, un, you know, unyielding his character is and the devastation he leaves in his wake. He has so much power. He can, he has the power to, he's a force. Oh, yeah. He yeah. comes into a village and, and leaves it as devastated as the plague. You know, he, he, he comes to, and people are in terror of him. He is the, True. however right or wrong and how, how much inherent evil behind that. You know, he is the power of God you know, uh, made physical, you know, come in and just to, to up, up end, uproot all these people's lives, his character in exorcism. And you kind of hinted at it there, Sam, is he's, he's pretty much impotent, you know, I mean, not, not physically, sexually, but what I mean is as as far as a force in his community, he is no force in his community at all. And I think the film really, the film goes out of its way to point that out several times. Because it shows him giving services and there's hardly anybody there. Yeah, know? and he, he talks about that uh, with at least one other character yeah. where he talks about how you know how few people attend his services. Yeah. Yeah. He's almost a joke to in, in a way. To, yeah. He's kind of almost like the mascot, like the the the, the lovable old you know village priest that that you know that all the hip swinging young kids kind of tease and you know he just doesn't really have uh, much of a of influence at all in these people's lives. Yeah, you kind of feel bad for him, but it's also such, I think maybe the reason I like it so much is because it's such an unusual, nashy role yeah, to have yeah. him be this kind of like, it's like, Gardening he's like, the, he's like yeah. the little engine that could. Yeah. He's so <laughs> determined to save her, uh-huh. yeah. but it's, I can't think of another Nashy movie where he has a sort of powerless, sexless role like that. Yeah, it, it I mean, even, stands even, out. Even Goto the Hunchback has sex, you know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> fair, fair, fair point there. Yeah, exactly. And, and there's another odd thing in Exorcism that it's clear that Nashi wanted to, to be part of the structure of the story because they do not shy away from the fact that the characters that he's dealing with, the, the, the girl who's, who's uh, quote-unquote possessed, and her family, they're very wealthy. There is a class consciousness built within the structure of this story. In other words, the the matriarch, 
uh, of this of this family, um, not only is a is, is a widow, but it's because of the fact that she is a widow that it seems that she's as close to the priest as she is because she's this is one of the few families that Nashi's priest character seems to be on a pretty consistent basis communicating with. And so the fact that it's almost as if, well, they're wealthy, they have the time for religion, they have the time to be a part of that aspect of, of the, the society, it, that, that, that plays a part in it. But then the movie also goes out of its way to show that the younger people in the family, not just the, the daughter who gets possessed, but the, the other daughter as well, they are very much, uh, you know, they're young and therefore shown as slightly hedonistic, if not a lot hedonistic at times, uh, to the point where the the brother character, the one, the, you know, the first one who's killed, is, uh, I mean, he's he's sleeping with the help for God's sake, which automatically puts in mind uh, the 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 idea of a distinguishing of classes between these two people because that means the power dynamic between those two people regardless of how much in love that woman was with the brother he was essentially her employer for god's sake yeah that i'm glad you bring up that like obvious class tension that is i think such a an interesting part of the exorcist that is maybe less obvious or more complicated there, but watching this again and thinking about those kind of like wealthy, privileged, and frankly, very spoiled female characters. Yeah. It also made me think a lot about uh, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll and the way that similarly sort of, I mean, in a different way, but similarly has... Nashi as this kind of blue collar figure with these privileged women who are all making each other insane. Yeah. And I've never watched them back to back before, but they have such like an interestingly parallel story structure, especially in terms of the way that both films deal with this idea of, okay, we have this mentally unwell character, but because we come from this privileged background, you know, we're going to waffle about how to handle it. And because we're spending all this time waffling, all these people are going to die. <laughs> yeah. Good point. You're, you, and you, I hadn't thought about it until you brought that up, but you're right. The, the structure, especially with, with, essentially with Nashi being an outsider introduced into a household with three female characters. Huh. That's, you know, that, that we're is all true. related. Yeah, all of them, all of them of the same family. This is true. Oh, Granity yeah. has way more sex in the other movie. <laughs> Quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, I think the only woman he doesn't have sex with in the film is the one that you only see in a photograph. Mm-hmm. So yes. That's... Whereas in Exorcism, and also none of the uh, female characters yes. are uh, are deformed. You know, unless you want to call it just being possessed by a demon, that part of a type of deformity. But yeah, <laughs> it's not, a handicap. Maybe. It is a handicap. It can. <laughs> Maybe you could get a parking sticker for that one. <laughs> <laughs> she will help me park at the mall. <laughs> it, it also, and I want to say they came out maybe the same year. They're, um, yeah, they're very close. Although maybe it's, well, uh, no, I was thinking about, uh, what what is it called? Um, oh my God, this is going to make me crazy. It's okay, uh, we can edit out the long Mal- Malabimba, sorry. I was thinking about oh, Malabimba, which is... <laughs> Another, it's a little bit later. Um, yeah, that's the but, late. That's the late seventies, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's 79. Okay. Um, but it has a, a similar sort of thing going on where it's like a teenage girl becomes possessed and part of being possessed is acting like a total asshole <laughs> in a way that's really satisfying to watch. Isn't it, isn't, it, isn't it strange? Let's come back to Alabama in a, in a minute, but let's, I love the, the, you know, there was this entire little subgenre of, of, of quote unquote exorcism films there, you know, the, all, the ones that would definitely be, we would definitely call exorcist ripoffs. I don't see exorcism, Nashi's film as being an exorcist ripoff, although no. uh, it definitely they did definitely tweaked the the mm-hmm. third act in such yeah. a way as to kind of give the audience what they expected after the exorcist came out. But the uh, the things that were expected and the things that therefore exploitation filmmakers ripping the exorcist off the things they ramped up just makes the, <laughs> just make the films insanely ridiculous because yeah. it's just well we'll amp up the cursing even if the cursing sounds really strange. Uh, <laughs> We'll we'll amp we'll amp up the, the 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 bizarre ways in which you know beds levitate or float or hop around. We'll we'll do some some strange uh, things with the uh, facial makeup on these beautiful women. Uh, we'll uh, well the, you know the, the vomiting. We'll do weird things with vomiting. Let's have them vomit you know actual animals out of their throats and shit like this. You know, yes. like, have either of you guys seen? Uh, we haven't covered it on the Nashi cast beyond Nashi cast. I'm sure we'll do it at some point. But Demon Witch Child. I've seen Demon, Demon Wish Child. It's been years, but no. yeah. Okay, that's uh, Arsario, isn't it? Is that Demon Wish Child? Yeah, yeah. I was also, uh, was, it, wait, was it also released under the title The Possessed? It might have been. It yeah, been. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, that's, that's a funny, that's that's a hilarious one just because of, of some of the things they have the, the, the little demon child say, Yes. Especially when it's obvious that the little girl doesn't know what she's going to be, what's going to be dubbed, and you know doesn't yes. know what she's actually saying, and just some of the lines she's delivering. So anyway, yeah, we'll get around to that one at some point on the Nashi cast, but it's, it's amusing. It's, like- it's, it's quite entertaining, yeah. It's like Kathy's curse, where oh, God. Like, all the little kids just curse at people. <laughs> God, that, that movie! I made the absolute horrible mistake. I did not know. I, I bought Kathy's curse, you know, blind buy, and I sat down one night with my my beloved Beth, and I was like, "Oh, let's watch this film." I don't know anything about it. By the end of that, she was ready to stab me in the head. Oh no, poor Beth! <laughs> I, I was like, I didn't know it was going to be this bad, honey. I'm sorry. She's like, this is this is terrible. And of course, she's like, this is the worst film you've ever shown me. I was like, give me six months, and you'll be saying that about another damn movie. Yeah. Trust me. Yeah. What you need to do is you, next time tell her you're going to play a drinking game where every time a character calls someone a bitch, you have to take a shot. <laughs> Drunk, you won't remember that the movie's bad. <laughs> well, okay. As a sideline, as, as in the uh, in the realm of the the film that is currently the one that has me in Dutch with Beth, is uh, I I have never shown her a Jess Franco movie. Oh wow! Just because I if I ever do it, I think I may have like accidentally shown her like uh, Awful Doctor Orloff or Diabolical Doctor Z, something like that, which I know she would like. She would she would really love those films. Yeah, they're great. Um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're phenomenal, and they're right up her alley. Um, but at the same time, uh, I made a gigantic error because I recently got that uh, wonderful set of Fu Manchu films, the the box set from uh, oh. from Indicator. <laughs> and uh, I was like, "Honey, let's go through these Fu Manchu movies." And so for the first three, she was all on board. She was really enjoying them, talking about how well, you know this one, you know. The, the differences between the people playing Naylon Smith and how she kind of preferred this film to that film. And then we got to the fourth one. And my memory was that Blood of Fu Manchu, the first one made by Franco, 
was actually pretty good, and it was really Castle of Fu Manchu where we started digging a hole and we never got out. <laughs> and so I cranked up. I was like, so we get to uh, Blood of Fu Manchu, and I fire it up, and and I as it as it starts, and I see just Franco's name. I think to myself, yeah, and I, my memory is this this she's gonna be fine with this one. About forty minutes in, she's looking daggers at me, and she says, "Does this thing get any better?" <laughs> uh oh, no. <laughs> and, and I said, short answer. No. I said, uh, uh, I don't remember. In other words, I lied. Uh, I, I lied right to her face. And she knew I was lying the minute I said it. But we made it all the way through the movie. And she said, there's a fifth one of these. <laughs> and I said, and, and I, and I said, and I, I never had any intention, honey, of showing you the fifth one. And she said, you should have never shown me this one. <laughs> I was like, hey, turn, uh, Blood of Fu Manchu is much worse than I remember it. I mean, it's, it's, it's like he had 35 cents to make the entire movie, and it's clear, it's clear that he had Nigel Green for all of two days. I mean, <laughs> Nayland Smith is at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie, and it's like, what in the hell are we doing here? Oh, God. Yeah, I, I feel like European cult movie fans... We ask our partners to put up with a lot sometimes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Normally I'm a better judge, but seriously, obvi- obviously my my memory of that film, uh, I was drinking or so- I don't know. I have no well, idea. Don't make her watch Suburban Sasquatch, whatever you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. is like I, I know that, like, like for instance, we, we joke about doing this the, these Yeti films. And the one that I keep joking with, you about that just came out on Blu-ray the the, the Yeti was it giant the giant Yeti movie I can't remember the name now uh, yes Yeti with, giant of the 20th century or whatever the hell yes the name of it is. yes that's what it is with well, the, the one with the giant Yeti nipples exactly <laughs> well th- see this is the thing I know that she will enjoy watching that one because she's a sucker for giant monsters and no matter how bad the film is she can find something to enjoy if it involves a giant monster like Tra- traipsing around and terrorizing people. She's fun. She loves that. That's she eating up with a spoon. Huh. But that's my own, that's going to be my only saving grace with the uh, with a, a lot of those kind of movies. I mean, that's though what I love about them is that they just have this sense of I don't know making me feel like I'm five again. Yeah. Like they're just they're not trying to be anything other than what they are, which is refreshing in a way if well, you like that sort of thing <laughs> i think that's one of the reasons why i think troy may be of the same mind is there's there's a there's a joy in uh, a well-done kaiju film to, for for instance because Definitely. it's it's the kind of movie that you can enjoy on so many levels and why would you think i would agree with you is it the fact that everywhere you look <laughs> you can't turn your head anywhere in this room without seeing a godzilla figure somewhere <laughs> uh, godzilla or mothra uh, yeah yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's there's plenty yeah. of werewolves, and there's a couple of different Christopher Lee figures too. But still, yeah, yeah, yeah that the, would, the kaiju the kaiju right do now. sort of dominate the room, don't they? they kind of <laughs> okay. do. Holy hell, I didn't even see that one over there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I've got them stashed into into every corner. <laughs> Jeez, that was that was pretty, yeah. I like that's pretty cool. Okay, yeah. anyway, anyway, I'm sorry, we're mm. I'm, I'm I'm being distracted <laughs> by the fact that we're stupid, ridiculous geeks. Anyway, no, but I, I think that sort of joy that a lot of people feel for big monster movies is a joy that I also feel for movies with devil worshiping scenes. And <laughs> awesome. yeah, yeah, absolutely. both of these movies have 
such great, beautiful sequences. Yes. Like, it almost doesn't... And, you know, we mentioned mm. there's sort of this plot twist at the end of Inquisition where you learn that it's all just this manipulation, which is the movie's most obvious jab at Franco, or, mm. you know, General Franco, not a jab yeah. at Jessica. <laughs> <Yeah. Franco. laughs> General Francisco Franco. There, yes. Yes. Uh, but it, it's like it doesn't even matter because those satanic sequences are just so gorgeous, especially on Blu-ray. And the ones in exorcism, I mean, you don't really have to have them there to have an exorcist type movie. So it almost sort of feels like he just was going for it. And when he wrote the script and was like, you know what, you know what this needs? It needs some, topless women worshiping <laughs> Satan wearing flowy nightgowns. And it's like, isn't that what life just needs more of in general? It absolutely does. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, glad, glad we're on the same page, Sam. <laughs> Always. Well, well, and, and, and also the, the, of course, the, as, as was depicted in many Hollywood films, that it's the counterculture that leads to, you know, Satan, Satan worshiping as far as, uh, you know, so so the, uh, the, I love that in exorcism. Of course, it's you know, it's they start hanging out with the hippies, and that's what it. You know, that's <laughs> all where all downhill from there. <laughs> yeah. So so that that makes me want. I, I wanted to ask you, Sam, because you know, again, you know, we kind of talk about you know Satan in these these films. Uh, what is what is Satan in each of these films to you? Because you know, obviously in Inquisition. I mean, he's really not a. He's really not in either of these films, essentially, right? Am I right about Exorcism? My memory is that, isn't it? Uh, well, that the, that is the fascinating thing about Exorcism is that we're not. And this is. Or this, we're never this, really totally well, no, sure. This this is a big break from mm. a lot of the uh, from both the Exorcist and from mm. the the general Exorcist ripoff trend, mm. which is that the quote unquote possessor that is afflicting this poor child is not a demon or a devil. It turns out to be the supposed ghost mm-hmm. of her father, mm-hmm. right? Which is so fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, it, it, what's even weirder about that is he does he doesn't pull the obvious trigger of, of incest at any point. This is this is apparently not what is going on here, which is really weird. It's also a little disappointing. It's like, come on. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's, it's laying right there just like a, a teenage girl that you have complete control over. So why aren't you taking advantage of it? <laughs> yeah, where and I'm guessing, I'm, I'm sure this wasn't actually the case, but I feel like that's how Malabimba got made. Is yeah. It was like, oh, you know, I could just imagine some Italians sitting or Italian producers like, wow, I just saw this Spanish exorcist movie and it does this really cool thing where it has this girl's dad possess her but but like it doesn't go far enough and so they were like oh okay i know i know what we can do here (laughs) malabemba the the first time i've seen that the first the first time i had seen that movie i wasn't i mean I, i i wasn't really prepared for exactly what it's going to be and and it the second and third times I watched it, which means that, of course, yes, I'm a pervert. Um, there's a certain point at which the movie becomes something that you're not sure you should have ever been watching the first time. It's so <laughs> sleazy. It's such a sleazy piece of filmmaking. It's almost as if the whole point of the movie was, how sleazy can we be? You know, Which 
is totally in line with Andrea Bianchi, who directed it. I'm yeah. sure anybody listening to this mm-hmm. has seen Burial Ground. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Is, oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Wonderfully sleazy and also has that great incest subplot. Uh, <laughs> God. Oh, the most the most infamous incest nipple rip in, in history. So, yeah, it's incredible. But you really could have a podcast all about fucked up nipples. In the <laughs> <cult> <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> I swear to you, I had no, but I had no plans to do this tonight. But here we are again. Here we are. We're swirling around the nipple over and over again. Or like, how about how about Ken Russell's Gothic, where you have an eyeball in one? You know, yeah, yeah, that's very true. Although speaking of eyeballs, I don't know exactly what they used, but the makeup at the end of Exorcism is gorgeous. It is. I agree. I agree. Are you you talking about those incredible uh, contact lenses that she's wearing? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they almost look like if you know if you're listening to this and for some reason you haven't seen it, it's. It's definitely like they tried to do a take on the exorcist makeup, but wanted to do either just didn't have a crazy budget or wanted to do something that felt very different. But they give her these when she's possessed, they give her these contacts that look like black and white marbles. Yes. Mm -hmm. But they're so effectively creepy. They're they're great. It, I wonder if, and I, there's no way to know, sadly, but I wonder if the idea wasn't, you know, for the for them to look like marble, you know, so the, with the, you know, so that there was the the whiteness with that, because that's the way that uh, the, the black elements look kind of seamed through the 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 white. It's almost as if her eyes have turned to marble. It's bizarre. It is. It, it, it's incredibly effective, though. I mean, I. I've not seen, uh, at least not that I can recall, I've not seen uh, contacts of that type. And uh, they, they, really st- they really stand out. Yeah, I mean, so often you see those all-black contacts that yes. are pretty creepy, but it's like, all right, how many times can we trot out the same pair of contacts? But here, I really don't know what they did. They look like they were probably pretty uncomfortable to wear, but... She wore them well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it was all props to Grace Mills. Her physical yeah. performance in Exorcism is astonishing. She does an amazing job in this movie. Yeah, and I think it's another interesting example of how you get these really strong, self-possessed female characters because she she's like kind of a pain in the ass, but in a way... In a way that I really appreciate because mm. I feel like one of the things that I find frustrating about some of the great mainstream satanic horror movies like Rosemary's Baby and like The Exorcist is you have these female characters who are just like, I don't want to call them pathetic. I mean, I think Rosemary is pathetic, but to a degree, yeah. Yeah, it's like they just sit around not knowing what to do, waiting for somebody to help them. and Subservient subservient to her husband completely, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, even in The Exorcist, like, I get this crazy thing is happening to your kid, but Chris O'Neill just is uh, such a frustrating character because she just is, like, stressed out and yells at people and doesn't actually do anything helpful the the entire movie. (laughs) True. But... I think I like this sort of histrionic Eurohar take on it more, where 
if somebody is stressed out, they're not like sitting around chain smoking. They're like having a full on fit or trying to have sex with someone that they shouldn't or like tearing their clothes off and cursing or in the case of Layla, (laughs) she just, it's, she just is such an asshole in some of the scenes. Like when she, when she tells uh, Paul Nashi's priest character, like, I hate you because of the grade you gave me in that <laughs> class last year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, she's just a little shit teenager, but um, in a way where you're like, you know what? You burn that house down. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something else. And this is, this is another way in which I like the way exorcism is constructed because, once again, the whole idea of this kind of, uh, I mean, if you go if you go back at the the whole idea of the problematic girl child, it always seems to center around. Strangely enough, that same age, those strange teenage years, <laughs> those formative when, years. Yeah, yeah, those formative years when uh, when they uh, suddenly all, all these bo- all these body change things are happening to them, and they become you know moody and not that not that the boy children are like that. That's ridiculous to even <laughs> think about. But but of course, this <laughs> the problem with the girl children is they they become this way, and they be, they go from being uh, to to use the old cliche, the daddy's little girl. To this angry, moody, fitful, uh, verbally outspoken and cruel, but just this, this person who's acting out in ways that, by the time you get to the age that the character in Exorcism is, clearly this is a girl who we're we're past puberty. This is not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is a woman or a young woman who is trying to find a way to differentiate herself from her peers and from her parents. And, and her make, controlling ass brother. Exactly, yeah, right. she's trying to separate herself from her family, and this is a shortcut to it. This is a fast, hard smack of a way to do it, and, uh, and this is this is something the movie plays with just a little bit, uh, but it, it could have played with it a lot more, I think. Yeah, it's also interesting if you compare Exorcism and Inquisition. In both cases, you have these really strong but young female characters who are trying to form their own identities and establish their own lives. And part of the way they do that is by falling in love with somebody who treats them well and makes them happy. Right. And all the other characters in the movie are like, how dare you? You cannot fall in love with this person. We are now going to try to ruin your happiness. Mm. And good point. It's like those are sort of the the jumping off points for both movies. Granted, they deal with them a bit differently, but it's it's interesting the way that Nashi definitely gives his female characters agency. And also, I just really love that as a director, he was willing to hear people's ideas and yeah. let people kind of experiment rather than being a sort of controlling auteur type who thought that the only good ideas were his. And, and th- I think that having, having come up the way he did in the film industry, you know, starting out um, as, as an extra and then uh, as a script writer and then as a script writer and actor and then working his way through the process until then he's behind the camera. It's that same thing that you get when you, when you have uh, an actor who works themselves into the position where they become a director, which is, they know how actors think. So it's very easy for them to be, quote-unquote, actors, directors. And when you get into conversations, uh, you read these, the, you read interviews with the actors who work with Nashi, 
when he was a director or when he was just, you know, one of the controlling creatives on a project, even when he wasn't a director, he was a collaborator. He's someone who wanted your ideas because the whole the whole feeling for him was, hey, how do we, you know, how do we do this as well as we can? And I think maybe that's why his films feel like I I know that this comes up a lot, especially if you go down the rabbit hole of reading like online reviews of Nashi movies, which is always a, a bad time. But <laughs> <laughs> it gets weird real fast. Yeah. Yes. Or it's like people just don't understand what he's going for. And so they and, and this happens to a lot of Euro horror. It's definitely not yes. just Nashi. You know, it, it happens True. to yeah. Jess Franco and John Rollin. And I think unless that particular type of filmmaking and that vibe appeals to you, I, I can see why people find those sorts of films tedious or poorly made or, or whatever. But I think regardless of what subgenre he's working in, it seems clear to me in all of his films, whether as a director or just as an actor or writer, he just loves the genre so much and seems to count himself second, if that makes sense. Whereas I feel like there are a lot of really self-important directors who think of themselves as being above a certain genre and they're just trying to bring their vision to the screen. But I don't think he was like that at all. I think he just wanted to make horror movies yeah. and there's something so like pure about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that, that really makes me love him all the more is that there's this, there's this statement that I've made uh, in different places at different times, which is, in some ways, Paul Nashi may well have been the very first monster kid to make good and become the thing that he loved to watch on screen himself. Because he grew up, you know, the, the, the film that was the formative influence on him was Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. And it's not real hard to draw a line from that childhood viewing of that movie to the movies that he made in the 70s and 80s. This is a fan of this stuff who who managed to actually become a creator of this stuff and it really makes you feel well i mean there's a lot of positive to say about that let's just as as fans of the stuff ourselves it's really wonderful to see someone who was able to succeed while being someone who feels the same way we do about this stuff but yeah it, it also paints him as someone who not just has the the strong will and the capability to do this but someone who would be in a conversation just like this. Yes, which is so exciting. And whenever I hear somebody sort of like turn their nose up or say like, oh, but those films are really boring or crappy I'm in my head, and sometimes I will say this to them out loud, it's like, you're not a real monster kid. Yeah. You don't actually <laughs> like monster movies if you don't, if, if you hate Nashy movies. Like, Go back to watching your dumb slasher movies. Get over yourself. <laughs> it's like it, it's like it's it's the uh, my my favorite variation on that is people who have a problem watching black and white movies, and it's like, well, then uh, you, what, what kind of freaking lunatic are you? I mean, <laughs> you're you're cutting you're cutting off so much great cinema that it's it's not even worth talking to you anymore about movies. Period. Because your your frame of reference is so small, I don't even I, I don't even I don't even know how to relate to you. Yeah, I don't understand what to say to people who 
say things like, oh, but it's old, or mm-hmm. oh, it's black and white, or oh, wait, you mean I have to read subtitles? Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. <Yeah. laughs> All right. Oh, well, but you I, go, I, go back to watching Pretty Woman or whatever it is that you, you, you would rather watch. I got a kick, by the way, I got a kick out of, of kicking on uh, both the English dub and the English subtitles on Exorcism just for shits and giggles. Uh, yeah, and, I did the uh, same thing and it was so funny. It's really weird to see the, what's not there. And mm-hmm. it's, it's weird how sometimes, I have to admit, the English dub was smoother and got across some information in a better way. Uh, it wasn't often, but there were four or five times in the movie when I thought, that's better than the subtitles. That's better than the Spanish version of how they're saying this, how they're getting this information across. But it was rare. Yeah, I have to admit that I have a real love sometimes for watching the dubbed version of Euro Horror because like, that's what <laughs> I grew up doing. Yeah, and yeah. I know it can be really off-putting to people who have never encountered that style of overdubbing before. But when there's just like no attempt whatsoever to match up mouth movements, and, but it's like it's very comforting to me for some reason. So I, like, I kind of love doing that when when I can. <laughs> well, that is how we. I mean, that's how most of us saw these things in the yeah. first place. I mean, when you yeah. had a, the ones where you have adults trying to do children's voices, I mean, those were some oh, of the most. <laughs> Of course, the, the worst offender ever, of course, is, is uh, House by the Cemetery, you know, yeah. the boy in House oh. by the Cemetery. That, I always feel bad for that actor because, man, he just, he always got a bum bum shake from uh, from from people doing his voice. Uh, there was that Barbarian film uh, that he was in, or like post-apocalyptic oh, yeah, one yeah, that the, he's uh, in. Uh, it was Warriors of the Wasteland with, Fred, with uh, yeah. Fred Williamson. and yeah. And it, his voice in that oh, is terrible, God. too. I mean, that poor actor, and it's like he always got dubbed by the worst people. And what's terrible <laughs> is he seems like, it, 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 I mean, it... it, it once you can separate yourself, the kid yeah. is doing as good a job as a child he's, actor can do. He's fine, yeah. yeah. It's, it's just, yeah, that voice yeah. is so distracting. <laughs> I, I can't look at that kid without thinking about that scene from A Blade in the Dark where they, uh, the other little kids just chant, you're a female. Yeah. You're a female. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, that 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 poor kid. I mean, they, they, I, I'm sure he was living the life Gianni of Riley. Reza, but shit. I think his name is. Uh, what was, was it? Giovanni? What is it? I think Giovanni Freitza is his yeah. name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, it's uh, he was in. He was in. It's like that little. Oh my my goodness, the the little red haired girl who was in Deep Red. And oh, um, yeah, darn, she was uh, in like two or Nicoletta, three. Nicoletta Elmy, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, she, I mean, and what, what's great is she was she was in these several iconic films yeah. around that same period, around that period of time. And uh, wasn't she in uh, Don't Torture a Duckling? I think, anyway, I, yeah, I, I, yeah. And it's just one of those things where, um, you, you, you wonder, I, I would I would love to, and there probably are interviews out there with her, I, I, and I've probably read them and I've just completely forgotten the details, but the the idea of the films that, that she was in, and also the, the little boy, it's like, how, what were the directors and the other actors saying to these kids to keep them from, you know, to keep them from focusing in on the, the horrific elements of the stories that were being told? And, uh, I mean, I know stories from other child actors who made horror films, at least uh, here in the States, and I know that uh, in most cases, uh, there's a there's a reason people love to make horror movies because people have a lot of fun making horror movies because they have to because you're having to you know the, what you're try, what you're doing when you're when you're 
shooting the scenes mm. is so intense that everybody has to make jokes and, and make light of things and have a good time when the cameras aren't rolling or you you just you just lose your shit. And uh, I, I just wonder if I wonder with the with those child actors who, quite honestly, I think do great great jobs in, in almost every uh, every instance. I wonder what what the actors and the directors are telling them how they how you know how they're being coached to do certain things, and it's just ooh, I mean, it, it'd be a good thing to, to to find out. Yeah, we really have gone on a tangent here. Oh my God, yes, yes, we have. Well, I mean. To bring it back, what I'm what I'm talking about is is or what I was alluding to in the first place was the idea of the uh, the child separating themselves, turning themselves, you know, trying to find a way to adulthood, which is something that you can see in both Exorcism and in Inquisition to a degree, because in Inquisition, Daniela Giordano's character is a woman who had she saw what her future was going to be. She had the man in her life that she loved, and they were planning to be married. Their their life was fairly planned out, barring, you know, whatever life was going to throw at them as a married couple. They were set. And then everything changed. And that totally warps her perspective on life and sends her careening down this path that ends up in, uh, you know, in, in tragedy for more than just her. But in, in Exorcism, you have a young woman who is, once again, she's a, she's a teenager who's on the verge of... of being an adult with her own life, um, you know, move, moving out on her own, which is oddly enough something that her older brother never did, which is something else that the movie, you know, hints at being, you know, being a, an oddity of this of this class of wealthy people who stay in this large mansion because that's the family home, uh, and, and it seems as if uh, what, watching these two characters and how they respond to these tragedies in their lives. Uh, you know the, the death of the father or the death of the lover. It, it becomes this uh, w- this weird warped way of becoming an adult too, and learning that the world is a horrible place. <laughs> yeah, and then almost out to ruin your happiness. Yeah, well, every choice you make is bad. Is it and is it oversimplifying it too much to say that in both of these films, as in I think a lot of these other films of this type, but that Satan represents freedom and. Yes. Christianity totally. represents the authority. Represents the you. You've been you've been reading my mind. Yes, <laughs> totally. Wait, wait. I didn't. It's a scary place to be. <laughs> that's that's just it. In both of these movies, I mean, in any movie where you're talking about Satan, hmm. Satan is not necessarily chaos. Satan is change. Satan is our pal. i'm sorry that just came out satan is your buddy (laughs) invite satan over he'll bring beer (laughs) but or or drugs (laughs) anything you want he'll bring it but that's just it in these it's i keep i keep reflecting on the uh the the idea of uh in the tarot deck death being uh not uh, the death card being actually just a, a, an instance of representation of change, and it seems that the uh, the church, the religion that these people live under, which kind of undergirds everything and kind of rules, especially in the Inquis- in Inquisition, it kind of rules everything that their their society sees as what needs to be done and what is right and proper. The introduction of the other side of the adversary, the Satan, the devil, whatever you want to call him, it is, 
it's not chaos, it's change. It is the desire for change. It is being unhappy with the society as it has been set up under quote unquote God and looking for a way to change it. And and that in that setting, with religion being this this thing where there's only the one or the other side, well, there's only one other choice. So I'll make that choice. Yeah, definitely in tarot, the devil card represents, like in its positive aspect, represents liberation, being freed from something that's trying to control you. And I I think that comes out pretty clearly in both of these movies in a way that it doesn't always in the, the sort of witchfinder general ripoffs throughout the 70s yeah so it's it's refreshing even though it winds up not being actually satan it still kind of is mm-hmm. and, I, and i think that the reason that it doesn't i mean it doesn't it, it doesn't really have to actually be satan for it yeah, to it's matter like it because matter. it's all yeah it, it doesn't matter because it's all representative of the the system that they're trapped within in the first place and so there's there's no other place for them to go other than straight to that black mass. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There are only there are only the two sides, you know. And, and you've got to pick. You've got to pick. You got to pick a side. And if you're not happy with the side that uh, you've been on, you you only got one other choice. Time to uh, time to run to Satan and start about start uh, trying to inject some marijuanas. So. <laughs> Sorry, sorry. I'm just trying to come up with the most the, the most uh, uh, idiotic way to talk about uh, finding a way to mentally liberate yourself, and that was just about the dumbest way possible. <laughs> yeah, you sound like Tipper Gore. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> See, this is what you're like after you only inject two marijuanas. <laughs> then you're hooked. <laughs> well, so in um, it, it, when you start thinking about <laughs> the different representations of Satan in cinema beyond just these two films. The, of course, you know, there, there, it, it all had to be up until the late 60s, probably the mid-60s. If you start doing something like that, uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to do it within the restrictions that are placed upon cinema at that, at that time. So when things start to kind of crack open, I've always felt that the most interesting representations of Satan on, on screen were really ones that were made in the 70s when people were still trying to take it seriously before they just decided... There seemed to be some decision at some point where it's just like, if you actually bring Satan on screen, you've got to do it in a way that uh, doesn't make people laugh. Where it's just like, well, you can make Satan... You can put Satan on screen in a way that doesn't make people laugh, and it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, Louis Cipher, played by Robert De Niro in Angel Heart. I mean, it's like, let's not be quite that obvious, but think that we're not being quite so obvious. You know, it's, 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 don't get me wrong. I, 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 I can get a lot of joy out of that kind of thing, but there's a, there's a way to keep the character in the story and not on the screen that makes it more dangerous. You brought up earlier the, uh, you brought up uh, High Plains Drifter. To my mind, High Plains Drifter is a film about the devil. Uh, it totally is, and, and and that and it's all the scarier because the movie doesn't completely pull that trigger until the, la- the 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 latter few minutes of the movie when it just makes it impossible to avoid the fact that this was the devil or a devil or some kind of evil entity of some type that came here to bring out the worst in all of you. And whether it was, you know, the ghost of this person who, you know, you, you know, the, the town was responsible for murdering or not doesn't matter. 
this is uh, this is the embodiment. This is how you embody on screen uh, that kind of idea in a way that is just. I mean, it's brilliant because it's just a person, which is the worst thing in the world. That's why uh, even something that I admire as much as I admire Rosemary's Baby, where it's just you know the Satanists are the neighbors next door. They're just these. They're just these people. Which is so powerful. Yeah, yeah. That, that, I love that. This is this is even stronger because this is someone who you would think because of the way they're acting, the way uh, Eastwood's character acts in High Plains Drifter, it's someone you would feel was dangerous and that you would want to keep at arm's length, but who was useful enough that you would think that you could possibly take advantage of or use and not know how bad an idea that is. Yeah, and I think there's something much more interesting about these sorts of films that hint at it rather than making it a literal depiction of Satan. Yeah. And, like, even if you just kind of, if if you trimmed the end of Inquisition and left off that explanation about how it's actually psychological manipulation, I think it still is really effective because you're still not sure is this power real or imagined. And it's like, it doesn't matter if it is or not because it's still having some sort of impact. It's Mm -hmm. changing that particular community. But I think to your point about something like angel heart or even devil's advocate, like when you try to make the devil manifest as a specific character, it's just kind of stupid. It's not as powerful. Well, I mean, I, I I'm a big, big fan of Angel Heart, actually, and I do think. Well, I like and, oh, I, too. I and I think, it. and I, I think it. De Niro is terrific in that. I mean, I would hope that nobody was surprised with when he got to the end of the movie and realized that he's. <laughs> I mean, you would hope that you know your average viewer you would hope would pick up pretty quickly that who he is, but I well, still think I love or, his, or I love his, at least his performance is just awesome. I love the film, but what I love about that, that character, and this may be where you were going with it. I'm not positive, but I love the idea that the really intelligent viewer of the film mm-hmm. would think that this man is specifically using a pseudonym to intimidate people. That it's not really him. Yeah. That he's, that he's yeah. actually, you know, that he's yeah. actually just using it to, yeah, to make people wonder. And that seems to be the way that it, the, the film is coding it because of Mickey Rourke's reaction to his name. Mm-hmm. If you, wa- you watch the film and him, him repeating the name and just looking at it, <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, okay, so we're so not going to, you're not going to give me your real name, are you, is what he's not saying out loud. You know? It makes me, it makes me think of the scene in Son of Dracula when they figure out that Alucard Al- is Dracula. The Alucard, yes. the Alucard's always. <laughs> something, something that you could get away in 1940, you could get away with in 1943, but never again. I always loved, uh, you know, uh, Michael Weldon's, uh, you know, uh, psychotronic book, the book of, yeah. the big psychotronic book of, of, of film, and every summary, every time there's a film, where the character is called Alucard, he always puts in parentheses "clever," you know. Between you know, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I wasn't trying to talk shit on Angel Heart. Which oh, I, I didn't think, think you were. Oh, yeah, no. Incredible for so many reasons, mm-hmm. but I do like that it occasionally leans into this like campy territory oh, a yeah. little bit. It does. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. it definitely does. It's a it's a very smart movie, and I think that that's one of the that's one of the ways you get away with having a character like that in a movie like that is you are smart enough to lean into the fact that an intelligent audience 
is going to have its eyebrow go up the soon yeah. as soon as they hear something like that, you know. <laughs> or have a nice chuckle. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, somebody's playing with somebody here, but I don't know who is playing with who yet. You know? Yeah, but you know there's at least a couple people who watched the movie when it came out in theaters and they were like, wait, what? Well, what dog? <laughs> no, no, buddy, no. Yeah, no, no that, that, that can't be right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yes, yes, it is, my friend. Of course it is. Where are you and where is your brain? Because they're not in this room together. Like they didn't inject enough marijuana. So that's they, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, talking about the ending, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, drop of information at the end of Inquisition, uh, you know, there's like the, those weird kind of alternate uh, endings on, on exorcism that have been over the years in different countries where the movie kind of stops at different points because the, the film has played, uh, the, the version we, you have on Blu-ray is, is kind of what I think of as the correct way the thing ends, which has the, uh, the, 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 the exorcised girl essentially appear to die. Is that is that, how, well, is that how you read that? Well, but see, I'm thinking, isn't it still the same version where the very last frame has this weird where she's opening her... Right. Yeah. There's, there's, that, a, there's, that, a, there's a, There are three different cuts, or at least okay. two different cuts, where the there's a pause with her eyes closed. Right. And then the credit, you know, the credits play over, the, over that. And okay. it's a still image, and that's it. And that's the way the movie ends. Mm-hmm. And then there's that version with then her eyes open, and then the movie completely ends. But then there's a, another variation where essentially uh, her is, is they, the the credits play and as uh, but but the the credits play over her eyes open as if maybe she's alive and still possessed. Well, see, and that's why that end, that's why that ending has always just bugged the hell out of me. No pun intended. But <laughs> seriously, it's because because the way it ends abruptly, it almost looks like a bad edit. <laughs> you know, it's so yeah, weird the way because yeah. her eyes. Her eyes are almost like half open. It almost looks like the actress is just opening her eyes and they didn't edit it one frame too soon. I'm yeah. sitting there thinking that can't be the reason because surely nobody, no editor no in the world would let that go by as a final scene. So it's got to mean something, but it's such a weird kind of half. It does it so abruptly that it's, you know, yeah, it's like, is she dead with her eyes open? Is she, was it a, is she, you know, is she, is she, Say you know is she still possessed? Is she is she saved? Um, what do you make of it, Sam? I think she's still possessed and ready to party. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that. You just hope. You mean that that's that's your, yeah. yeah. I, I hope. No, I mean my assumption was that because she opened her eyes, it meant that she was alive, but it was left ambiguous as mm-hmm. to whether. She's still possessed or not? And I like that. Horror, yeah. yeah, yeah. Because it's a horror movie, it's always like, mm-hmm. are we preparing for a sequel where yeah. she is still possessed? <laughs> well, you know, Exorcism to the Heretic. I'm, and getting, I'm a, down and, with that. And it's the seventies. We can't make it a totally happy ending. There's got to at least be. You know, it's it's got to. It, it's got to at least be some sort of you know uh, ambiguity. But yeah, I, I think with me, it's just the whole timing of the ending. The whole it just seems to me like so. Like odd to even do that idea is like just seems like there's like a frame, like it's a frame or two too soon or something. I don't know. It's just strange. Yeah, but. it's, it's <laughs> weird. Well, of course, the way the film should have ended is she's laying there on the bed, she her eyes close. We have a shot of the room with the priest standing beside her body, and then her entire body just explodes. <laughs> See, I thought she was gonna say like you know she reaches up and grabs the priest's crotch and just like you know rips you know. <laughs> Oh, the, of course, the classic pieces in there. Of course. I mean, 
And that really is the greatest ending to any movie ever. It is, and every film should end that way. No matter what the genre, no matter what the, you know, it should just end. Or, or her eyes open and she reaches up and just rips off Paul Nashie's shirt. And we freeze over the chest hair. We freeze frame over the chest hair. It's like the ultimate payoff. The audience get what's what it wanted the whole time. So. I got to thinking about, I got to thinking about this, uh, not to, not to delve into pieces for too long here, but there, uh, I, I, I saw, Please. I saw pieces in the theater when it came out. Uh, I was a, I was a, I was a teenager at the time. Uh, and uh, far too young to be seeing this fucking movie. And uh, now I do wish that there was some way for there to have been a camera in the theater just to watch my and the other kids' expressions <laughs> at that final scene. <laughs> yeah. Just I wonder what our reactions really were because <laughs> all I can just... remember is how unforgettable the movie was. Period. Yeah. To the point yeah. where I was, you know, as soon as I started writing about movies, one of the first movies I ever wrote about was Pieces. Mm-hmm. Because it's just indelible. There's just no way you ever forget this experience. To, to the point where I, there was a period of time when I would talk, talk to people. I would mention Pieces and people would had no idea. No idea what the hell I was talking about. And they were probably mentally healthier people than me. But still, people, come on. I mean, it's... Yeah, I I have no real words to describe it. It's it's one of those movies where it's no matter how many times I've watched it, and we just we pretty recently did a Daughters of Darkness episode on it. Oh, because, did you? Okay, I'm gonna have to yeah. circle yeah. back and hear that. One. Even though it's like kind of mainstream at this point, at least among Euro cult movies, there just is. It's just so magical that it's like I never get tired of watching it oh, or yeah. talking about it or hearing other people talk about it because it's like it, it needs its own like how did this get made thing. Not <laughs> like it's like it's a movie, so I know how it got made, but like how were all of these individual choices made? They don't make <laughs> any sense. <laughs> right. Now, see, here's the thing. I've thought about this, and this is this is the first time I'm saying this out loud, and I may be calling this into being, and if I am, this is a good thing in a way. I think it would be possible to do a a a podcast on just pieces and do it in ten minute increments. You only and and it would you could do two hours digging into why in the fuck is this ten minutes as fucked up as it is? <laughs> because you it, totally it, could do that. You, yeah. So you mean like. Every episode, the episodes wouldn't be 10 minutes long. No, no, long. each, each episode. 10 minutes of the film. Yeah, right, Correct. Right. You do the first 10 minutes, and you can only talk about the fucked up shit in that 10 mm. minutes. And then the next episode will be the next 10 minutes, and so on. And I mean, you could spend an entire episode on that line of dialogue where she says there's nothing more beautiful uh-huh. than smoking pot and fucking on a waterbed. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> or uh, or just the scene where the girl goes through the plate glass window. Yeah, or just the scene in the elevator where it's like a bloodbath on a level that you're just not prepared yes. for. <laughs> yes. He hides a chainsaw and, and let's in just, an elevator. Let's just all say it together. Bastards. 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 <laughs> yeah. There came a point. Yeah. When, and I, I think when you and I covered it, Troy, I think I brought this up. Yes, Rod actually tried to rationalize this scene. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I think I know why. Yeah, I think you're that, right. That, that actress said bastards three times. And here's what I, here's what I think. What happens often with, with a, a scene in which someone is, is exclaiming something uh, uh, like that is what you do is you try to give 
all, you try to give multiple takes of a single word or a single phrase to your director so that they can make a choice in the editing room about which one to use. And if you and the look, the answer at, was D. All of the above. <laughs> yes, and that, exactly. And that's the choice the actor doesn't think a director is ever going to do. And yet, in what this case, in, yeah. in this case, yeah. that is exactly what the some bitch did. <laughs> Linda Day George's finest moment. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. You know from well, then on. <laughs> the last time I rewatched it when we did the episode. I think my new favorite character is the the like assistant police inspector, the mm-hmm. one who gets yes. Kendall to help him come to the police station and do research. It's like you don't have other cops there to help you. You have to get some fucking college kid. <laughs> it's one of the yeah. lamest attempts to get an a, a, a character involved in the police aspect of a storyline. <laughs> it really is. It's like it's like. Have you not watched enough Giallos to know that what you need to do is actually create a character who is so curious about this murder that he involves himself? That's how you do that. <laughs> Rather than just like asking him, hey, kid, can you yeah. help? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, second pair of eyes. You know, yeah. yeah you, either, you either make, make the character uh, a suspect and therefore they feel that if they don't get involved that they're going to go to prison for it. You make them a, a, a mystery fanatic so they get curious about it and involve themselves in it. You do not have the police essentially issue a, a beginner's p- cop badge to a, a fucking civilian to go and do shit. It's, uh, no, but, but it makes it so good. Like the scene at the end where they finally figure out what's happening and... They like he sort of he and Kendall are still doing research and he says to Kendall like oh I have to go you have to stay here and Kendall's like well what if you give me a gun too it's like what <laughs> yes <laughs> yes here here's the spare badge here's the spare gun <laughs> the key to the armory yeah <laughs> yeah exactly if you need a tank here's here's where you go it's like, come on man what the fuck okay to sum up. <laughs> Pieces, classic. No. Uh, <laughs> okay, actually, to sum up, the representations of Satan on screen are are numerous and joyous and bizarre. And the the, jo- the joys of anything like Satan, not just you know the, the 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 old devil himself, is that they can represent and be anything you want them to be within a fictional tale. What Nashi seems to have been interested in doing is using the uh, religious aspect of having the adversary as part of your story to emphasize the the inner turmoil of his characters, to give you a view inside these people's lives and the, the problems that they have, which is, of course, what a good storyteller would do. You use these supposedly outside forces to illuminate the interior of the people you're telling the story about. In Inquisition, it works wonderfully because what the whole point of the movie is is that having this kind of system can and often does pervert things that should be much simpler if you were to extract these kinds of of uh, over overweening societal necessities because of the religion uh, placing these restrictions upon people. In Exorcism, he seems to be playing also 
although Inquisition does a little bit as well, playing with the you know the the differences in uh, class, playing with uh, the, the fact that it seems to only be the wealthy people who seem to have these problems. It doesn't the the, 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 the poor people don't seem to, to 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 have their dads invade their bodies. It's weird, uh, unless it unless it's just that's happen, happening physically in the, amongst the poor people. But we're not interested in that right now. So Nashi as a storyteller is of course using these elements to tell interesting stories about characters, or at least interesting from his perspective. That's the best way to use things like this, because maybe we should have talked about this a little bit up front, because uh, I think that your view of uh, the precepts of any particular religion that has the devil or Satan or whatever is probably going to factor into how you look at these things in the first place, how you perceive these things. For instance, uh, I love the exorcist, but for me, it's I love the exorcist in the same way that I love a werewolf story. I don't believe it. I'm not, you know, I don't think that there is a, a, a devil out there that's going to, in, in, you know, in, insist on inhabiting a human body just to twist and pervert people's lives and to 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 show them how awful hum, humanity really is. Uh, I think we do just a perfectly fine job of that on our own, and we really don't need anything outside of us outside of us trying to do that to us. So to me, they are essentially fantasies and enjoyable ones. I enjoy these kinds of stories because to me, as a non-believer, that's what they are. But if you have some type of religious belief, if you have some firm belief in these areas, portrayals of Satan on screen kind of probably fall into different categories. And I'm just wondering if you have strong religious beliefs, Sam, do they do they fall into one camp or the other? And if you don't, do they fall into one camp or the other? Uh, hail Satan. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so are you asking me, like, do I particularly have strong religious beliefs and does that impact my appreciation of these? Yes, yes. Do, do, does, it, uh, does, that, uh, does your religious belief or lack thereof uh, effect or in which ways does it affect your enjoyment or your desire to see these kinds of stories? So I think part of what I love so much about depictions of Satan and the satanic more broadly throughout literature and film is the range of meaning that it has because, you know, I, I did grow up in a Catholic household, but at a really young age, I said, you know, this is all nonsense. And so my background is like sort of atheist, sort of pagan. It, it like, I would say I don't have any concrete religious beliefs it's maybe more of a spiritual thing so that has no bearing really on how I feel about Satan in films but I think in terms of issues around things like sexuality and politics and all different forms of experiencing pleasure and liberating yourself I think Satan is really useful in sort of a Bacchanalian sense. So I tend to be less interested in movies that focus on Satan as being the ultimate evil, the way you were just talking about. Yeah. And I feel like that shows up in things like The Exorcist and in something like The Devil's Advocate in like a really literal way. What about The Omen? And, uh, sorry, what? What about The Omen films? 
Is that would you think yeah. that also is more of a literal evil, pure evil kind of satanic representation there? It it is, but I feel like the Omen kind of, does, especially when you consider the second and third sequels, I feel like the Omen tries to go somewhere interesting with it. I agree because yeah. they mm-hmm. they show him as a character and mm-hmm. not as this just like symbolic more symbolic presence like he's got an actual personality and actual aims Mm -hmm. which i think is kind of cool plus it's hard not to like sam neill but but i tend to be the most interested in movies uh, like exorcism and inquisition which show the satanic as a liberating force that can help empower people against any sort of form of social control, whether that's the church or the government or just like a patriarchal family structure. Mm -hmm. So I think that's what I get the most out of. And I mean, my academic background is sort of also in medieval studies. So I really enjoy a lot of that kind of scholarly writing around the Inquisition and just some of the themes that pop up definitely more in inquisition than exorcism just like ideas of how these repressed communities turn to different ways to empower themselves and i think something you were saying earlier about when we first started talking about inquisition this idea of how the natural world is so external to a lot of conservative christianity especially mm-hmm. in the middle ages mm-hmm. that in the way that it's shown in movies like this and certainly the way it's written about in more historical volumes is this idea that like the church as this really kind of wealthy, powerful force was so separate from the way people lived their lives. And a lot of the time in these small communities, to your point much earlier, like people didn't have doctors. They had, somebody who knew herbal lore and often it was women in those roles because the, the sorts of duties that they had to fulfill most often were being midwives, secretly being abortionists yeah, and things like that. And so I think because of the way all that developed, there is this really interesting connection between women's lives and sexuality in general that, kind of there's that divide that you were talking about earlier where on one hand it's you you have the church and the way the church wants you to do things but then on the other hand you have the way people actually live Mm -hmm. and i feel like things like the inquisition forced a dividing line there that wasn't necessarily there before and so that's why you start to get all these really great depictions of satan which i hope never end Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I don't think as a symbol there's any chance that it's going to go away anytime soon. <laughs> no, and that's that's one of the things that I do find so interesting about Satan in general is it's such a cultural force that you don't have to be Christian to appreciate that kind of symbolism, and you don't necessarily even have to have a Christian background to engage with movies like this. Yeah, it travels well, and you wouldn't expect that, really, yeah. Yeah, I would say it travels way better than Jesus. 
And, th- and that's that's true because it is it's it's such a an obvious representation mm-hmm. of the darker elements of human nature. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there are also really interesting connections you can make to folklore and mythology that come from all different traditions. Lots. Yeah. Exactly. But still have those sorts of like bacchanalian figures. Yeah. Yeah. I think that. Uh, We've kept Old Scratch away from the door for the night, anyway. Uh, we've, we've explained to him that we really like him and that we would like it if he kept his shit on the other side over there. And uh, if, if he's got any uh, goodies, he could slip them under the door, and uh, I'll, be glad to, uh, I'll be glad to check them out myself. Uh, I, uh, I like the fact that the aspects of the devil as a, as a, as a caricature, as a, as a demon, as a... A scary entity as the boogeyman that you that you tell children you know you tell children to, are going to come and eat them if they don't you know do what they're told, follow you know do what your parents tell you or the or the boogeyman will come get you is just another variation on you know do what you're supposed to or or you'll burn in hell, and uh, I think that uh, it's natural for the horror film to use depictions of Satan or the devil or whatever you want to call him as a, a boogeyman and to give it different names. And I think that uh, these these two films, uh, they're they're very much. I, I love the fact that one it was a contemporary story and one was a was was a period set story, and yet in a lot of ways he's he's Nashy as a scriptwriter is kind of wrestling with the the same kinds of ideas, and just playing around with different uh, different details. Um, strong strong female characters uh, put in bad positions and making do as best they can under their circumstances. Um, tragic stories in each case, and I think that uh, that is kind of the the thread that will go through almost any story that involves talking about, you know, incorporating, I guess you would say, uh, a satanic character into it. Is uh, they're almost always tragedies. Uh, there's there's not really a uh, <laughs> there's not really a, a, a happy ending that is uh, discernible from uh, from even the beginning of the story in a lot of ways. Uh, but in our case, uh, they're certainly entertaining. I mean, these yeah. are, oh, these yeah. are fun, these are fun <laughs> kinds of stories. The, the pure entertainment of these kinds of stories is, is, is a blast. And it's what I, I think keeps coming, keeps us coming back to them over and over again and, and waiting for other variations on the same theme. Definitely. Uh, what would, uh, who, who's your favorite devil on screen? Oh, um, you know, I, as far as like actual representations that are maybe a little bit more direct, yeah, I really love the Devil Rides Out. Ooh, good one. Yeah, oh yeah. That's there, awesome. there is a uh, there's a Twilight Zone episode in which Burgess Meredith is quite obviously the devil, and I think that that is absolutely one of my favorite wink and a nod devils that I've ever seen portrayed on screen. I have never seen that episode, but I will definitely have to seek it out because for some reason I find Burgess Meredith terrifying. (laughs) 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 I think the episode's called uh, Printer's Devil. Mm. Okay. Now, uh, Walter Houston's pretty awesome in the the Daniel Devil and Daniel Webster. Devil and Daniel. Oh yeah, yeah, he's so good in that. That's a yeah, you're right. That's a really good choice for yeah on screen devil. That's a good choice. You're right. Yeah. But that movie is black and white and old. Oh, you, you see, we shouldn't. Yeah, it's like wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that almost immediately disqualifies it, doesn't it? 
Well, for that matter, so are the Twilight Zone episodes. So why'd you watch that? Oh my god, that's true. <laughs> that's so true. That's I forgot. And it's different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sam, thank you very much. Uh, do you have any idea when uh, when your book is going to actually be uh, when McFarland is going to actually put it on the uh, the publication menu? Uh, so it is on the menu now. Oh, good, um, good, good. Yeah, there's. It's in the spring catalog. I'm not sure what the exact date is my assumption is april or may that would make sense that means we could probably buy it this summer so the legacy of world war ii in european art house cinema will be out uh, uh i i was trying to be you know trying to be very vague and say sometime this year but looks like spring or summer that's good news yeah should be pretty soon which uh, one day i'll get over the shock hopefully by the time the book comes out <laughs> <laughs> well i mean this is not your first book but uh you know so no but it's it's been like my baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, it's, I'm still for a while. I kind of thought, you know, I'm never going to try to release this book. I'm just going to keep writing chapters because I'm a crazy person. <laughs> like, and, the, like the graduate student just constantly finding another book to read. Exactly. So I still have mixed feelings about the fact that it's going to be out in the world and that other people are going to look at it. <laughs> Take pride. Take pride. I, I, I'm, I, try, I'm trying. I will. <laughs> thank you very much for coming on to, yeah. to talk to us again, Sam. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun. But next time we have to talk about Werewolf and the Yeti. Oh, really? Uh, I, yeah, um, we're down. Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. Glad to. Because Yetis keep coming up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know what? Why not just focus in on that werewolf versus... Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's a great idea. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Sam. Thank you. Bye. What is it? It's the From B to A podcast season two at FromBtoA.LiveSend.com and on Apple Podcasts. I take a celebrity who took a while to make it big and compare that pre-stardom career to the career of someone who made it big right away and then established more of a cult fandom. This season I am covering Angelina Jolie. And film director, master of Italian horror, Lamberto Bava. There will be cyborgs, demons, ogres, supermodels, giallo, and a smooth-talking Danny Aiello. I see you ordered the turkey sandwich. You like turkey? Yep. Vampires. Werewolves. Zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good. Real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems. And his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, the Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet.
Okay, folks, before we let you go, uh, we've got uh, we've got a, a piece of uh, email here that uh, we want to uh, address. Uh, I've not read this piece of email. Troy, Troy has, uh, has seen it, but I have not. Uh, if you would like to email us, remember the show can be reached at nashicast at gmail.com. We'd be glad to hear from you. And uh, as we will discover here, uh, I'm assuming that... Uh, are there questions? Are there questions involved in this? There is indeed a question. All right, all right. There's a, there's there's questions. Someone has climbed the mountain to uh, speak to the gurus. <laughs> there, you know, perched on the. the <laughs> I, I'll go. I'll go find. I'll go find the gurus, and we'll ask them to come up. Come up and speak into the microphones. Uh, so, okay. Uh, what, yeah, this, what, do we, what do we got here? This is from Kurt, and uh, Kurt with a K. He says, "Guys, longtime listener, first time emailer." Says your cast, both Nashy and Bloody, that would be Rod's uh, other podcast, The Bloody Pit, have eased the cultural isolation I experience here in the equatorial heat of Sumatra, where I am making the second half of my life. There is absolutely no one around here to discuss topics of even relatively mainstream interest, like Argento versus Fulci, <laughs> much less to take a deep dive into vintage Euro horror or other exploitation fare. Your voices and insights, as I shoo the monkeys away from the corrupt. They're drying on the terrace. <laughs> Bring me back to a milieu I used to inhabit back in America and probably never will again. So thanks for all that. Um, now, of course, if, wow. if John Hudson were here, he'd have to ask him, are any of those monkeys invisible? <laughs> but, uh, oh, oh, God. How did we... <laughs> I, I couldn't, you See, know... See, you go with Sumatran money, mo- monkey, I'm thinking Sumatran rat monkey, I'm thinking brain dead, I'm thinking... <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh so, but I do love the image of someone shooing away monkeys while they listen to the Nashi cast. That's a great that that's a great visual there. I wonder if our voices help. <laughs> they may draw them. Our voices may draw the monkeys. God, could be right. Anyway, so Kurt goes on to say, my request is a simple one, but timely. So I'm hoping you'll give it some attention. It is this: I find myself with fifty dollars of Christmas money and a veritable Sophie's choice between world between Volume One and and Two of Shout Factory's Nashi collections. So all things considered, which one gives more bang for the buck? I've only seen one Nashy movie before now, which is Werewolf Shadow, so it's all new to me. What say you? Thank you for your attention and for, again and again, bringing me back to myself, Kurt. That, first of all, is an awesome email, and thank you so much for that. Thank you very much for the email and for dumping this decision in our lap. Uh, (laughs) um, That is a tough choice. Having just had both those sets in front of me recently because I wanted to go back and rewatch exorcism here uh i have to say see that's a toughie let's 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 go in reverse order Mm -hmm. um the second set has hunchback of the morgue Mm -hmm. which is essential it's essential it's insane it's brilliant it also has werewolf and the yeti Mm -hmm. those two films alone make the second set almost a almost a must-have for nashy fans but the first (laughs) the first set Mm -hmm has the must-see Horror Rises from the Tomb. Mm-hmm. It has Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Ah, which is another must-see. Mm-hmm. This is true. Mm-hmm. And it has uh, Night of the Werewolf. This is true, yeah. And those are the three from that yes. set we did yeah. commentary tracks on. <laughs> yes, okay, so... So that was yeah. So I, that was that was we're trying to you know I was I, I want to I'll say my recommendation is Volume One, uh, and uh, yeah, but it's gonna look really selfish because we're like that's the one we have three audio commentaries <laughs> where we only have one audio commentary on Volume Two. But but my other real reason was I mean coming down to which films we consider I consider essential, you know, is really Volume One has three of them, Volume Two has two of them. Yeah, you know? that's true. Um, and uh, the other thing reason too, and this is a really minor 
reason, but just for me personally, I think just as far as visually, aesthetically, I think the cover art on the first one is much better than the second one, even though I think it's the same artist that did both of them. But Yeah, I, but the I first do, one's better. The yeah. first one is better. So just even look at how it will look on your shelf. I think uh, the cover art of the volume one is better. So you can't go wrong with either one, let's be honest. Um, there's True. great, great films in both, and all the films are, are enjoyable. Um, but if you're asking, yeah, I think my recommendation would be volume one. You know, I, I, I guess I would too. If you if you ever get another shot though that second volume, yeah. if for no other reason because of Hunchback, see the and Werewolf first I mean and, and not, werewolf, not yeah. the Howling Beast yeah and not the Howling Beast or Werewolf Werewolf of the Yeti whatever title you want to uh-huh. watch it under it doesn't matter. Um, the the other films don't get me wrong all ten films on both sets are well worth seeing. Uh, the the, the uh, mm-hmm. Devil, Devil's Possessed or uh, the title that's under there Marshall from Hell Marshall, or... Marshall from Hell Devil's Possessed whichever title you see that film under that's an exceptional film as well is, um, is Exorcism on one or two so Exorcism is on volume two so one has I think what is Vengeance of the Zombies on one Vengeance of the Zombies is on, on volume one and so and... what's the other what's the fifth one yes and Human Beast is on volume one yeah yeah and so that means that you've got uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb Vengeance of the Zombies uh, Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll, Night of the Werewolf, and Human Beasts on the first set. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, those are... <laughs> quite a variety, quite a good overview of, of, of some of the stuff Nashy did. Yeah, that, that gives you a good cross-section of a lot of his stuff. Yeah, especially if you say the only one that you've... You say the only one you've actually seen now is Werewolf Shadow, so you're just now digging in. you got, you know, so you haven't seen any of these. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, either, like I say, either, either, either volume's great, but go with volume one if you is our recommendation, I believe. Yeah, I mean... The uh, the joys of, of volume two are extremely. I mean, you know, Exorcism and a Dragonfly for Each Corpse are the other films on that, along with Devils Possessed and Werewolf of the Yeti. Um, I'd say do them in numerical order. Do set one first, and if you ever get a shot at getting set two, uh, do do set two then as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that that gives you especially Horror Rises from the Tomb, which is which is a must 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 see, and so uh, yeah. But our recommendation is going to uh, unanimously be do volume one. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks, Kurt. And we're going to go to the big map and put a pin on Sumatra now because that's yet <laughs> another one to add to where we have listeners in another country. We have another place we have listeners. I would love to know what uh, what brought you to Sumatra. What oh. uh, if you if you don't want to uh, if you don't want to to give that information out, we don't have to make it part of the show. Yeah. But I really would be curious as to. Uh, what took you there for what you're describing as the second half of your life? It was obviously not to seek out the thriving uh, geek boy culture, apparently. You know, the apparently not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, sounds like they need to be enlightened that can, into the the joys of, joys of perhaps of some Euro public trash. perhaps some public screenings of these uh, these Nashy films will uh, win friends and influence people, or perhaps make people drive you out of the town. I don't know. <laughs> but once again, thank you very much for writing mm. to us. All right. Well, uh, we would like to let you know that uh, we uh, Troy and I already have an idea of what we're going to do for our next episode, the next Nashy Cast episode, uh, here in about a month from now. Uh, we finally found a way, we think, to tackle a uh, to tackle a Nashy film that we've stayed away from for a lot of reasons, uh, mainly because. <laughs> I have not. I, I'll, I'll confess. I have not watched the film because of the insanely bad reputation this particular movie has. But Troy has, and Troy's recommendation to me was, "Do not watch this film." <laughs> yeah, that literally said those words. Uh, and so I have not. Uh, although I have had a, had access to it, uh, I have not watched this film. Film, but we have decided we found a way to cover 
Shadows of Blood, mm. which uh, for some of you that just gave you a chill, mm. and for some of you that just made you want to crawl under your bed because that means <laughs> if you crawl under your bed, that means you know you've seen it. You yeah. know yeah. it's a bad film. Uh, I am expecting the worst, but uh, we've decided to finally cover that movie, and uh, I, I, I'll admit it has been me that has kept us from covering this film because I just did not want to see it, mm-hmm. but. We have, in an unexpected way, mm-hmm. found a pathway to cover this movie and not feel as if we are... Um, well, like not feel like we're just digging the dredging. You know, like we're just trying to extend the show by covering yeah, just yeah. anything, you know, just because it has Paul Nash in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which, hey, we could be accused of. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But we found a way to cover Shadows of Blood that I think will be interesting, yeah. could be a lot of fun, and uh, might actually uh, make... Make you laugh. So next episode of the Nashy cast, we will finally cover Shadows of Blood, and uh, hopefully we will find a way to not embarrass ourselves doing it. (laughs) So I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we will talk to you next time.